Uh, it's good to see faces that we otherwise may not see. We got family members that are in from out of town. We've got some members of this church family who have gone out of town. And uh, we've got some folks who are joining us online today. And we are glad for everybody that is here. These past couple of weeks, we have been talking about this question, why should I believe you? Two weeks ago, we did that. We talked about the way that God's word corresponds with reality. And then last week, we faced the fact that Jesus was not just a man. And I mentioned that today, we were going to be talking about one of the most compelling reasons to believe that that is true about Jesus, that he rose from the dead. I've often said that if somebody predicted his own death, that would be pretty amazing. Now, there have been some people who actually did that, aren't there, in history. But if somebody predicted his own death and then facilitated it to happen and then predicted also his resurrection and then rose and was seen by people alive, well, that would be Easter. Okay, Obi-Wan Kenobi. He did it, sort of. Remember, you can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And then Obi-Wan made several appearances, proving his prediction true, right? That was Star Wars. Come on. Let's talk about reality this morning, okay? Let's deal with reality. The year is about 56 AD, a real year in Earth history. Nero is emperor of Rome, a real person. Living in Ephesus, the apostle Paul, also a real person, has received news that the church in Corinth is struggling. And it's really not a surprise. Corinth as a city is kind of the poster child of cities of depravity in its day. And those people who had become Christians in Corinth still needed to work at growing out of their old lives. That was tough to do when they were surrounded by it. Paul had been there some four, five years before, and now the Holy Spirit-inspired apostle sits down to write a letter to his friends in Corinth to set some things straight. And among the important subjects that he wants to address to them to get right is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says to them, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, these words from 1 Corinthians 15 are somewhat of a publicly repeated kind of creed in the church early on, as, as early as a few years after Jesus had risen. And within 10 years or so of writing these things, Paul is going to die because of his conviction that these things are true. 
It's a bit of information so important that he says to them, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ our hope is in this life only, we are of all people most to be what? Pitied. Stephen Hawking, September of 2010. Remember Stephen Hawking, the brilliant guy who was stricken with ALS, but his mind seemed to be pretty sharp in some ways. He said this in 2010, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Hawking died, by the way, in 2018. And you know, I believe that he was exactly right about the broken down computers thing. In fact, there can't be a heaven for computers. But was he right that our brains are just like a computer, that they're just mechanical devices that are full of chemical and mechanical reactions and they run like machines and then they run out? Is there a life beyond all of that activity or not? Just this past Tuesday, Mark Williams went to clean a house that his parents owned on Table Rock Lake in Missouri. And after he finished working on the place, he took a kayak out on the lake. He sent a few pictures over his phone to some friends. And at some point, Mark went into the water and drowned. His family reported him missing Tuesday evening. No one knew where he was, but when his body was found this past Thursday, it confirmed that he had died. Now, Mark was a believer in Christ. Mark and his family believed that Mark will live again. Will he? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You see how important this is? The celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead has been repeated by the church for nearly 2,000 years. But you know what? The attempt to quiet it, the attempt to disrupt that celebration, started on the day he rose from the dead. And it shouldn't surprise us that people still attempt to discredit the idea of the resurrection. That's nothing new. And that's why it's important for people who are followers of Jesus to be able to explain why should I believe you? This morning, let me share some of the good reasons that we have. Not just to glibly say, he's risen indeed, but also to have behind those words solid evidence to believe the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I've got, oh, 18 minutes to do that. So for a first step, Paul Little, in his book, Know Why You Believe, points to three things that exist today. Three tangible things that anybody can look at and say, yep, that exists, that nobody can deny. The existence of the church, the existence of Sunday as the day of worship, and the existence of the New Testament. What do those have to do with Jesus being alive? I'm glad you asked that. Start with an, an existing church today. That's irrefutable. It didn't come from nowhere. 
It has a traceable history. The church is here, and we've got to this opportunity to look back and say, well, where did it come from? In that history, there is this group of people who live under the conviction that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The church exists today because of a resurrection story way back. And then consider how the church worships on Sunday. What day of the week is today? Sunday. All right. Good. You've risen too. Good. As soon as it was established, that became the regular practice of the believers. It wasn't by accident. In fact, these people who were the early Christians were, by and large, first of all, from Jewish backgrounds. What day of the week did the Jews worship on? Saturday. Was it just by chance or coincidence that the Christians began then to change that to Sunday right away because they believed in the resurrection story in which Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week? Hmm. And then consider the fact that the New Testament is written mostly by people who claim to be eyewitnesses of a risen Jesus. It exists, doesn't it? There is a New Testament. We can pick that up and look at it. And those people who wrote it are adamant to tell you that Jesus is alive. The New Testament exists because of the resurrection story. In fact, that New Testament is full of the resurrection story. The church, Sunday worship, the New Testament, those are things that you can look at today, things that exist. Nobody can argue that, hey, there's no church, or hey, there's no New Testament, or no, they don't meet on Sunday morning. No, that all happens. How do you explain their existence without the story of Jesus raised from the dead? They exist for some reason, don't they? It's also a tradition on Easter Sunday to go, amen. All right. So when people attack the idea of the resurrection, they don't do it against those things. It's kind of hard to argue against those things. They point to either a big mistake or a big deception. The New Testament records in those Gospels ten very different appearances that Jesus made to people after his resurrection. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, talks about several of those. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul writes. Now, either the people who made these claims were very mistaken or they were trying to pull off one of the most successful pranks in history. And you and I have been punked. So some have suggested the whole Christian movement began under a big mistake. That those appearances of Jesus were all a big mistake. That including the one where 500 people saw Jesus at the same time. They thought they saw Jesus. But it was wishful thinking, or it was some kind of hallucination that everybody was having together. My friend Greg was a policeman for many years, and then an investigator, and later became police chief in Carthage, Missouri. 
Greg was trained in crime scene investigation. In fact, he later was a professor who taught it in law, law enforcement school. So Greg was often called upon to crime scenes to investigate scenes where people had died. And one day, one of those was the home of a friend of his who had died in his house, a member, in fact, of the police department. And against better judgment, Greg insisted that he be the one who would investigate the scene where his friend had died. It turned out that his friend had died from natural causes. And still the emotional toll of that scene added up onto Greg, as does the emotional toll of all kinds of things our law enforcement people go through. And he told me how some days later, after all that, he was sitting at home on his couch, and he looked, and sitting next to him was his friend who had died. Something deep inside of Greg told him that wasn't right. Turns out, that really wasn't his friend sitting next to him. Greg was having a hallucination. He was having post-traumatic stress issues. He went to a counselor and got that all worked through. But can you imagine that if Greg had been sitting there and looked over and saw his friend, and then Greg's wife Cindy said, hey, I see him too. And Greg's daughters said, yeah, yeah, I see him. He's sitting there right next to you. Now, if they had all said that, that would be different, wouldn't it? That's because people don't hallucinate together. At least not the same thing. 500 people did not all see the same imaginary thing. Those people who saw Jesus confirmed it to one another. They weren't just seeing things. They were saying to each other, I see him too. And Paul, by saying over 500 people saw him at one time, most of them are still alive, was inviting anybody to talk to them. So was the empty tomb, this whole story, not a mistake, just a really elaborate hoax? 58 years ago, Addie Mae Collins, three other little girls, were killed in Birmingham, Alabama, when the Ku Klux Klan set off an explosion in a church building on Sunday morning. Her body was buried there in Birmingham, and for years, her family members visited the graveside in memory of her. In 1998, they made the decision to have her remains uninterred and moved to a different cemetery. And when the workers went to recover her casket, they were shocked to find an empty grave. There were several ideas about what had happened. The main one was that because of poor record keeping in that cemetery, the headstone had been put in the wrong place, but they never found her body. And you know what? No one suggested that Addie couldn't be found because she had been raised from the dead. Here's the point. An occupied grave proves that someone is still dead, doesn't it? But an unoccupied grave doesn't prove that someone's been raised from the dead. 
Some of the earliest claims about the resurrection of Jesus involved the testimony that his body was not in the tomb. Well, that doesn't prove he rose from the dead. So was it a lie? Consider the evidence. Fifty days after Jesus was crucified, Peter, who ran away when Jesus was arrested in the garden, Peter, who denied that he knew Jesus, Peter stood up to preach, probably in the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem. And there, Peter, to a large crowd of thousands of people, boldly proclaimed to them that they were responsible for killing Jesus. And he told them, Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Think about this for a second. That audience there in the middle of the temple could have walked within minutes to the hillside where Jesus had been crucified, to the tomb where he had been buried. They could have asked any of a number of people about all the events that transpired in Jerusalem just seven weeks before. Right in the middle where all of this had happened, the apostles didn't hesitate to claim that Jesus had died and risen from the dead. Peter said to that crowd, just as you yourselves know. So 3,000 people acknowledged that on that very first day. And from there, the number grew. Acts 4, verse 33, it says, With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So what if they were just real convincing liars? After all, there have been a lot of effective leaders over the centuries who have misled large crowds of people. That's true, isn't it? But there have never been people who are willing to go to their graves for what they know to be a lie. Yes, there have been people who have been deceived by effective leaders. David Koresh, Jim Jones, Led lots of deceived people, even to their deaths. But John is pretty clear about the things that he wrote. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, what's different about the apostles is that they were also eyewitnesses to the things that they were claiming. To the resurrection. They weren't just repeating something that they had heard. They had seen Jesus alive. They watched him ascend into heaven. They were transformed from this huddled bunch of scared disciples into loud, in-your-face witnesses that Jesus was alive. And I ask you, what made the difference? Did they just watch a really good TED Talk? 
Had they seen enough tweets that they were finally convinced? Did they have a really strong inner feeling? They had seen the risen Lord. More than one person over the years has set out to disprove the claims of the Bible, especially the resurrection of Jesus. One of those was a young British lawyer in the 1930s. He set out to free the world from the fraud and deception of the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. But as he researched, Frank Morrison was persuaded by the evidence against his will. And the New Testament story in his understanding is true. The first chapter in his book called Who Moved the Stone? The first chapter he titled The Book That Refused to Be Written. There was another, an investigative uh, reporter in Chicago who set out to weigh the evidence concerning the resurrection. Many of you are familiar with the story of Lee Strobel. Lee also examined the evidence, conducted interviews, wrestled with all the objections that he could come up with to that idea that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Guess what? Lee ended up becoming a believer. And in his book called The Case for Easter, he tells about one of the interviews that he conducted with a hard-hitting Christian debater by the name of Gary Habermas. Strobel describes him as somebody who looked more like a nightclub bouncer than an ivory tower intellectual. This guy had multiple doctorate degrees. He'd written seven books on the resurrection. was a professor in of Bible college, and Strobel faced all kinds of questions to him, and Habermas wrestled each one of them to the floor, and then he said there was one last question, and he just expected a pat answer, but the response that Habermas gave was different than all the others. The question has to do with why the resurrection is important, and Habermas's demeanor changed completely. He responded by telling about the way he wrestled with that very question as his wife, Debbie, lay upstairs in their bedroom at home, dying from stomach cancer in 1995. And he said that during those hard days, many of his students would call him up to encourage him and would say to him, at a time like this, aren't you glad about the resurrection. And he said it made him smile because they were repeating his own teaching to him. And it made him smile, he said, because it worked. Listen to what he said. I knew if God were to come to me, I'd only ask one question, Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed? And I think God would respond by gently asking Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? I'd say, come on, Lord, I've written seven books on that topic. Of course, he was raised from the dead. But I want to know about Debbie. I think he'd keep coming back to the same question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? Till I got his point. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, there's an answer to Debbie's death in 1995. He said, that's not some sermon. 
I believe that with all my heart. If there's a resurrection, there's a heaven. If Jesus was raised, Debbie will be raised, and I will be someday too. Then I'll see them both. I think the same thing about a lot of people today. I have two sons, my parents, a lot of friends. I think about my family members who are living right now here on earth with me. Oh yeah, I think about me too. And if Jesus was raised, those people who loved him in this life will be raised. And I will be someday too. And then I'll see them, all of them. How about you? Oh, I would love to be sure that you'll be there too. And that can become a certainty today because of the certainty that Jesus is alive. You have to accept that for yourself. Did you know that? Nobody else can do that for you. Are you listening? It can't be forced on you. It's not something that you're sure of today because somebody else decided it for you. It's not something that anybody here can pressure you into accepting or to believing it is your own decision. What will you do about the place that Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, deserves in your thinking and in the way you live? just a moment, we're going to have a, a closing song here. And it's going to be a, one that's new to most of us. In fact, at first, you just need to remain seated, all right, and listen to the words and think about them. And then later in the song, those words are going to pop up on the screen, and that's going to be a cue to you to stand up, all right, and to sing along. So when that happens, what are you going to do? Stand up and sing along. Okay. Well, here's something else about that time. It's also going to be the time to step forward for Jesus. If you've never taken the step of becoming a follower of Jesus, well, that's going to be the time. And that'll be the time to come up here to the front. I'll be right down here by this table. And that'll be the time to say, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life too. I believe that he is alive. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he is coming again. I want his forgiveness in my life. I want to live again. I want to be baptized into him. I want my old self put to death, and I want to be washed of my sins and made a new person in Jesus Christ. I want those sins removed as far away from me as the east is from the west. That's pretty far. And I want to live forever. That'll be the time here this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that there have been ever since they first witnessed it, people who are faithful to share this good news, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, and that because he is alive,
we know that we also can be raised again. Father, we are waiting for this last enemy to be finally destroyed. And we look forward to the day when the trumpet will sound. And those who have died will be raised. Father, thank you for the promise that we have of life, the opportunity to know that we can be together again with those who have loved you, the hope that that puts out in front of us, the reason that it gives us today to live as you have called us to live. And even now, Father, be at work in our hearts, in our minds. Help us to consider the evidence that you've given to us that we might say with great confidence, Jesus is alive and my Lord and Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.